You're listening to a message that was recorded live at Roots Community Church in Costa Mesa, California. Roots exists to celebrate the glory of God through lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about our community, visit us at rootschurch.net. Amen. If you are able to remain standing, turn with me to John chapter 20. Let's st- we're going to remain standing for the reading of God's word. We will discover just how worthy he is. John chapter 20, starting in verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Verse 6, then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the other linen cloths or with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped in to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain. One at the head and one at the feet. Verse 13, they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she returned or she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Verse 15, Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go tell my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Verse 18, Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. This is God's holy word. Please be seated. Friends, the witness of the New Testament is not that Jesus Christ swooned 
from his injuries on a Roman cross, only later to recover from his suffering. That is not the witness of the New Testament. The witness of the New Testament does not report that the disciples stole the body of Jesus and hid the body in another location. The witness of the New Testament is not that Jesus' disciples made up a fictitious story about the resurrection in order to soothe their doubtful consciences. No, beloved and friends, the witness of the New Testament is that Jesus Christ died at the hands of Roman soldiers and was buried in the tomb of a rich man named Joseph of Arimathea. But three days later, he rose again. And in his rising, the New Testament reports that Jesus became victorious over Satan, sin, and death. This is the witness of the New Testament. And this is the event that we are going to spend and fix our gaze upon this morning. But before we jump into the incredible details from this account, I want to just draw one verse to your attention that I hope will, in a good way, plague us all sermon long. And that is verse 10 of John 20. So just look at it. It's a very simple, easy to miss verse. Verse 10, John is our gospel writer. He is writing this account. He says, then the disciples went back to their homes. After Peter and John saw that the tomb was empty, they went back to their homes. The same thing will happen to all of us here today. We will go back to our homes. We will go back to those familiar places and familiar spaces, some apartments, some homes, some condos, some here locally, some are visiting. We'll go into our cars and back to our homes. But my question is, will we be the same? Will have anything changed? My prayer is that when all of us go back to our homes, something will have happened in us and something will have happened to us as a result of stooping in and leaning in and seeing the empty tomb again. That when we go back to our homes, we'd have a renewed sense of confidence, not in our flesh because we made it to Easter service, but instead we'd have a renewed sense of confidence in the finished work of Jesus Christ, his life and his death and his resurrection for sinners. That we, when we go home to those familiar spaces and places, we'd have a renewed sense of awe and wonder. Finally, that we would go back to our homes today, we would be more sure than ever that Jesus is who he says he is and we are who he says we are. Now then, with verse 10 now, they went back to their homes. Let's jump into the details of this text. Three basic movements I see in the text. The necessity, the joy, and the main effect of the resurrection. Those are the three things I want to discover with you this morning. The necessity, 
of the resurrection, the joy of the resurrection, and finally, the main effect, what it accomplished for us. First, the necessity of the resurrection. Look at verse 1 and following. John, our gospel writer, records, he says, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. That's 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. roughly. And she saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So verse 2, she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. Again, that's John. And she said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So apparently Mary is not alone. She's with some other ladies, Luke and Matthew record as well. They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. And so our narrative opens with a frantic announcement. It's a panicked announcement from Mary Magdalene that Jesus is no longer in the tomb. And at this point, nobody is thinking resurrection. Nobody's thinking resurrection. It's an all out panic. It's unnecessary, but it's a panic nonetheless. And they're assuming, again, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid them. And so Mary's panic overflows onto Peter and John and they begin to panic. And an all-out sprint, a race, apparently, a race to the tomb ensues. Look at verse 3. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, verse 4, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Peter, of course, is much older than John, and apparently, or therefore, John is a lot faster than Peter, and John wanted to etch that into the sands of eternity. So forever, God's people would know that John is younger and faster. Let's keep going. Look at verse five and stooping in to look, stooping to look in, he saw, that is John, saw the linen cloths lying there, but he he did not go in. He was more timid or perhaps he respected his elder, the first among equals, Peter, the leader. John peeked and saw, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter, true to form, following him, went into the tomb. And he saw the linen cloths lying there. Verse 7, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. The panicked and frantic sprint ends with a sudden discovery. An astonishing discovery. A heart-stopping, mind-bending discovery. Their eyes are filled with wonder. The linen cloths that were no doubt still filled with the expensive spices that they would use to wrap Jesus' body. The cloths lying there and the cloth which was used to cover Jesus' face was folded up in a place by itself. 
In the first century, they would mummify their dead and they would have two processes, first the body and then the head. And they would use two separate claws, first for the body and then the head. So the body that wrapped or the claws that wrapped the body in one place and the claws that wrapped the head in another place. This would not have been the discovery had some stole the body of Jesus in the night. There's no signs of thrashing or thievery. Certainly, if somebody was stealing the body, they would have taken with them those very expensive spices and those very expensive claws that they use to honor the dead. This is not the scene of thievery. No, instead, as John Stott writes in his commentary, he says, like a discarded chrysalis from which the butterfly has emerged, Jesus left the grave clothes behind him as he moved into a new order of existence. Remember when Lazarus was, was raised just about a week before this in John chapter 11, another remarkable scene. Jesus stands before the tomb and he says, Lazarus come forth and Lazarus comes forth. And you remember what Lazarus was wearing all of his grave clothes. <laughs> it's a very startling scene. You know, the sort of mummy coming out of the, the grave, but he's, the point is he's in all of his grave clothes. But this is not the case with Christ. No, Lazarus, what Lazarus experienced in John chapter 11 was not a resurrection. It was a resuscitation. Lazarus would die again. Lazarus would need those grave clothes again. Lazarus, Lazarus experienced a resuscitation. Jesus did not experience a resuscitation. He experienced a resurrection. And therefore he will never taste death again. And so Jesus folds, notice that detail. He folds the face cloth up. He folds it up. So as to say to us this morning and the rest of the watching world, I won't need that again. And by the way, those who will come after me won't either. Jesus didn't merely reverse death. Beloved, he triumphed over it. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? Like a chrysalis, like a butterfly emerging from his cocoon. Christ is raised. Let's keep reading. Look at verse eight now. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, that is John, he went in. And he saw and believed. He saw and believed. Verse 9, for as yet they did not understand the scripture. Here it is. That he must rise from the dead. Oh, the necessity of the resurrection. He must rise from the dead. There is no good news apart from the resurrection of Jesus Christ. As excited as we got, as we sung lyrics from songs about the resurrection, it means nothing unless this is true. There's no good news apart from the resurrection. All there is is rearranging the chairs on the deck of the Titanic. It's going down and there's nothing we can do. We could just make it look pretty as it goes down. 
But that is not the witness of the New Testament. The witness of the New Testament is, yes, he did indeed rise and he must rise. The cross is only tragedy without the resurrection. At best, martyrdom. At worst, tragedy. The teachings of Christ, as good as they are, love thy neighbor. The teachings of Christ are mere morality apart from the resurrection. Our faith, according to the Apostle Paul, is utter futility without the resurrection. He must rise. It is a necessity that he rise. All of our Christian hope rides on this one event. Here another author, he says, what the resurrection did was to vindicate the Jesus whom men had rejected. What the resurrection did was to declare with power that he is the son of God and publicly confirm that his sin-bearing death had been effective for the forgiveness of sins. The resurrection of Jesus Christ vindicates the work on the cross. Without the resurrection, the work on the cross is not enough. It validates it, it vindicates it, and it expresses the power and the meaning behind it. This is the necessity of the resurrection. They did not yet understand that he must rise. Beyond just being a theological necessity, the resurrection also brings great personal joy. Isn't this true? We're not only heady in here where we go, yeah, theologically it makes sense. He must rise according to the the scripture, Psalm 1611. The holy one should not see corruption. Yes, he must rise. He must rise theologically. He must rise biblically. But, oh, brothers and sisters, the personal joy that overcomes the believer as we look into the tomb and see he is not there. So point two, the joy of the resurrection. After Peter and John had returned to their homes, apparently Mary went back to the tomb. And before there was joy, there was deep sorrow. Look at verse 11. Our text says, but Mary stood weeping. Now that word in the Greek for weeping is, she is wailing uncontrollably. This is not a discreet, polite Subtle weeping. This is an all out first century Palestinian woman wailing and lamenting over the loss of her teacher, her Lord, her Savior, what what she thought and was right to be her only hope. She's weeping and wailing outside of the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, they have taken away my Lord. Notice now the theology of the necessity of the resurrection now reigning into a person's life. They have taken away 
my Lord. And I don't know where they have laid him. The presence of the angels at the resurrection occurs in all four gospels. And I suppose their presence exists to show the reader that, and, and Mary and the discoverers that God was at work here. This is a heavenly event. Whatever happened in this empty tomb, God had something to do with it. And so verse 14, having said this, now we don't know if the angel, I, I, I want to, I wish I could be fully there. We don't know if one of the angels just said to Mary, hey, Or if Mary had just the sense, you know, when somebody's behind you, the text doesn't record, but verse 14, having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener. Now notice the, the courage of Mary Magdalene. She said to him, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. First, the angels aren't telling me where he is. Now this gardener's not telling me where he is. Of course, Mary's eyes still filled with tears. Combined with the newness of Jesus's resurrected body made him at that moment unrecognizable and her tears still inconsolable. Where is he? But then everything was about to change. Her weeping, her wailing, her uncontrolled lament and sorrow was about to be utterly reversed. Look at verse 16. Jesus said to her, Mary. And that was it. Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. The very first person in all the earth to discover, to see the resurrected Christ is a woman named Mary Magdalene. And this is so like Jesus to ordain this moment. Have you noticed this throughout the New Testament, how Jesus goes out of his way over and over and over and over again to dignify women, to respect them as equal image bearers, just as men are? Do you see Jesus doing it? And now God Almighty has ordained that the first person to see the resurrected Christ is a woman in the first century. Glorious. <laughs> and by the way, their, their testimony in the first century is not even worthy to stay up or stand up in court. So if this was some devised plan, this is a horrible plan to have a woman be the first eyewitness to the resurrected Christ because they can't even go to court to testify. But it is so like Jesus to ordain this. Imagine Mary's pure joy, pure joy to be the presence of her savior. But the question remains, how did she recognize him? 
How did she recognize him? Her eyes were still full of tears. Jesus' body was still in its resurrected state. How did she recognize him? Well, Jesus told us back in John chapter 10, verse 21, just how she recognized him. Here, Jesus in John chapter 10, verse 27, my sheep hear my voice. That's how she recognized Rabboni. My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. Jesus doesn't suggest to his sheep, hey, if you come along, it's me, it's me. He doesn't have to. They hear his voice and they come. Why? Because he's Lord. Mary heard the voice of her good shepherd and it was a familiar voice. Remember, this is Mary Magdalene. Mary met Jesus at a very low spot in her life. She was possessed by not one, but seven demons. I don't know how you're coming into this service this morning, but I'm willing to bet it's not with seven demons. This is how Mary Magdalene met Jesus. And it was the same voice that freed her from that plague and that terror of being demon-possessed, the same voice that said, out of her, is the same voice that is saying, Mary. And she heard it, and she recognized it. And she said, oh, I know who that is. The voice which commanded the demons is the same voice that is calling her name. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. Do you hear his voice this morning calling you, calling you to himself? Overcome with joy and wonder, Mary falls at Jesus' feet as she's done so many times before. I picture it as if she's clinging to his leg like a child does to her, their father's leg as their father's trying to get out the door to go to work. I don't know how actually she's clinging. That's just the, the mental picture I get, like a little child clinging to the father's leg. Don't go yet, I'm not done. She's clinging so tight that Jesus has to say to her, Mary, don't cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the father. As marvelous as this moment is, my work is not done. He lived, he died, he was buried, he resurrected, and then he ascended to the right hand of the Father where he right now ever lives to make intercession for us. The reason we're here is because he's interceding at the right hand of the Father. Mary, I'm not fully done. Again, friends, I don't know what kind of sorrows you've come in here with this morning but I need you to see Jesus personally engaging a sinner saved by grace. More than that, someone utterly plagued by demon possession. I need you to understand that Jesus does not turn away sinners who come to him. Christianity is not about how you can clean your life up and get to the heavenlies by climbing some moral ladder. Christianity is the exact opposite of that. 
It's God coming down to us because we could never ascend to him. It's the Marys, it's the Dylans, it's all of us coming to him, clinging to him and saying, forgive me, ransom me, help me. Christianity is for the weak, not for the strong. And Jesus comes to sinners and he says, you always come, you come. You come to me, all you who are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. You know who he casts out? You know who he pushes away? Those that don't think they need him. Those that think they can see. Jesus says, because you think you see, your blindness remains. Christianity is for the weak, it's not for the strong. And Mary is at her Savior's feet again, weak and needy. So whom are you seeking this morning? Whom are you seeking this morning? Well, we've looked at the necessity of the resurrection, the joy of the resurrection. Now I want us to end by just taking a glimpse at the main effect, what it produces for Mary, what it produces for those who come to him in weakness. Finally, the main effect of the resurrection. Verse 17, Jesus said to her, do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the father. Now listen to this sentence. My goodness, don't miss this, but go to my brother's and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father. To my God and your God. I submit to you this morning that you and I have never heard a sentence more valuable than that. Go and tell my brothers my family that I am ascending to my father and your father. You can't even count how many times in the gospels Jesus referred to God as his father. My father. I always do my father's will. I've only come to do my father's will. It was possessive. It was my father. It's a possessive pronoun. And it was never given away to anybody except right now. My father and your father. And I want us, as we close, to appreciate the certainty of Jesus' words. By the way, Mary is not only the first one to see the resurrected Christ, she's also the first one to herald the news. I've seen the Lord. She announced it. She preached the gospel. But I want us to appreciate the certainty of Jesus' words. Notice that Jesus doesn't say, I am ascending to my father. And if the disciples, Mary, tell tell the disciples this, if they get their act together, then he can be their father too. This is amazing. There is nothing suggestive here. There's no qualifications. I'm going to my father, and if you do this and do this and do this and do this, then it can be your father too. 
It's clear, it's certain, it's unqualified, it's pure grace. Listen, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ did not merely accomplish the possibility of salvation. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ accomplished actual salvation for the people of God. In other words, listen, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ didn't create great potential for sinners. No, the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, Paul records, is the power of God unto salvation. The gospel is not great potential. It's great power. Go tell my brothers, I'm ascending to my father and yours. We've never heard a more valuable sentence than that. Beloved, the main effect of the gospel is our union with Christ. This is what Jesus prayed in that high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, that we would be one with he and the father as he and the father are one. This is the greatest accomplishment of the gospel, union with Christ, my father and your father. Now don't misunderstand, there is still utter reverence for King Jesus. He's not like your homeboy, right? He is your brother, he is your savior, he's your Rabboni. And now through the gospel, you're united to him. In fact, the act of baptism illustrates this. Let me just read this text to you, Romans 6, 3 through 5. Paul is writing, he says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him. This is the illustration. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Do you see union theology? Verse five, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. He doesn't need his grave clothes and neither do you. I am ascending to my father and your father. This means union with Christ means that if you are in Christ, which is Paul's favorite phrase, if you are in Christ, then you currently possess everything Christ has accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection. You currently have it. You're not looking for anything else. The only thing the Christian is looking for is more awareness of what they already possess. So this means that his perfect obedience to the law, Christ's perfect obedience to the law is yours. This means Christ's wrath absorbing work on Calvary is yours. This means his victory over the grave, yours. Go and tell them that I'm ascending to my father and your father. This is the offer of the gospel, not potential salvation, actual salvation, beginning, middle, and end. And what do we do other than marvel at it? What do we do? I don't know. What what are my steps? What's the application? I don't know. Fall down 
worship. Paul says, make your life a living sacrifice, not to get to heaven, but because heaven has come to you. My hands, my eyes, my, my body, my mental capacity, my art, my, my, my ambitions, my passions, they're all yours, God. You've come to me. You've freed me. You're a friend of sinners. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he asked this question that would echo throughout all of eternity. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? So whom are you seeking? Why are you weeping? What is your only hope in life and death? My prayer is that as a result of our time together, we would go home. We'd all get home safely. But something would have happened to us. Maybe it's even imperceptible in the moment. Maybe it's so small, but you begin to see things differently. The Bible, the resurrection, the, the gospel has given a new tent to your worldview, a new tent to your lenses. I'm telling you, I do not want to view anything the same anymore if this is true. I don't want to look at my house as the same. I don't want to look at the bed. I don't want to look at my kids. I don't want to look at myself. I want to see it all through the lenses of resurrection. Christ, the power over sin. Christ, the power over death. Christ, the power over Satan. I want to look at my lawn different. I, I hate that thing. Always dying, always dying, always dying. More water, more water, more water. Soon a resurrection. Maybe it's more significant than a lawn, but you know what I'm saying. Everything changes. A renewed sense of awe and wonder. And finally, more sure, more confident than we were before that Jesus is who he said he was and we are who he says we are.